Thank you for listening to the Practical Democracy podcast from Delib. It's been a strange year, some would even say unprecedented. We wanted to look back at some of the memorable moments of the podcast so far and reflect on the recurring themes like technology, connection and accountability. So why don't we start at the beginning? On a rainy afternoon in Wales, I had an informal chat with Dr Rebecca Rumble from the organisation My Society. We chatted about participatory budgeting and a whole lot more, but for now, I'll let Bex introduce herself. research at My Society, which is a digital democracy development charity. We run lots of different websites that enable people in some small way to get things done when it comes to kind of government or parliament. Um, My job is to figure out if there's any point to that. Is it actually making people's lives better? Is it in any way doing what we actually say we do, which is help people to hold power to account? So my job entails doing lots of different research projects, looking at different websites, entails consulting with different organisations or governments or NGOs around the world that are thinking of trying to implement digital tools uh, for democracy, um, figuring out if their ideas are actually workable, if they're actually appropriate for the issues that they're trying to address. Because an awful lot of the time we find that people really want to throw money at doing something digital for democracy But it's just a kind of random, they've seen something somewhere and thought, yes, we want that. That will just get that off the shelf and plonk it here. An awful lot of the time, that's, you know, not really the most appropriate solution for the problem they're looking at. There's no elevator pitch for what you do for a living, is there, really? It has to be a really long elevator ride. A really tall building (laughs) to make it work. Okay, all right. So, participatory budgeting, hereafter always referred to as PB. Yep. So, repeat that. Participatory budgeting, PB. Okay, good. So PB, why is it? Where did it come from? Give us the, you know, give us the usual five minute PB thing. Just because again, some people might not actually know this stuff, right? Are we gonna, are we gonna go for Vader? Are we gonna go all the way back? We're gonna. Well, we you, you can't talk about what is PB without mentioning Brazil. Okay, okay. it would be wrong, and right. and someone would probably write in the comment section afterwards. But you didn't mention Brazil. One of the seventeen may yeah. comment. Yeah, go on then. So give us, give, okay. us the, give us the pitch. PB first occurred in a Brazilian place called Porto Alegre. No way. <laughs> okay, sorry. Just drop that ball on you, everyone. About 30 years ago. Yep. Um, really kind of groundbreaking, interesting, innovative social experiment. Mm-hmm. There was a big issue at the time about a lack of redistribution of funds, uh, civic funds um, in the area. So they designed this incredibly interesting program where they got local people to actually participate in the local budgeting process Mm -hmm. so everything was on the table um and they had a massive drive to get people in to teach them about what the budgeting process was Mm -hmm. how it worked where money went um and involve them in kind of decision making about where they actually felt funds should go the point of that exercise as i said was redistribution Mm -hmm. cool so very noble aim quite straightforward yeah presumably that went quite well it went very well. It yes, very well. people loved it. Um, and then it what was, happened after that? Politically great. Yeah. And obviously, we're talking thirty years ago, so what? this was a completely in-person exercise. It was completely right. offline. The uh, the internet has become the monster it is since, mm-hmm. um, and people have kind of looked at this way of doing things and thought that looks great. Let's implement some of that here. Mm-hmm. Um, and where is here? Like where is all it? over the world? So okay. PB is now 
operating in so many countries I can't even I don't even know the number um, and it's popping up everywhere all the time but at national and local level it's far more kind of uh, popular at local level but it's since that really great experiment in Porto Alegre it's been changed it's been chipped away at it's mm. been standardized it's been reduced so in many places now what they're calling participatory budgeting doesn't bear too much resemblance to that original exercise <laughs> an online version now has become a lot more popular mm -hmm. and you can understand why uh, you can reach more people that way it costs less but with it comes a lowering of quality you know yeah. there, there's an inevitable uh, loss if you move things online because people aren't as involved you know they're not there in person they're not able to have the same kind of rich discussions with with other mm. people they're not able to kind of interact and ask the kinds of questions that you might be able to ask someone in passing but don't really want to type online so there's a whole kind of richness to, to the offline experience that that's lost online and I think in the UK in particular, one of the things that massively constrains these programs is the fact that they've still got to be governed by kind of procurement rules and those mm. kinds of things. That experiment back in Porto Alegre was about a kind of mass pivot towards redistribution, mm. whereas the exercises in the UK do tend to be a lot more ring-fenced in terms of, okay, well, it has to be a capital project, for instance. Yeah. And it's only yeah, yeah. got a budget of, I don't know, 50 grand or whatever. Yeah. Um, at which point you've narrowed down any potential options so significantly that is it, A, going to be of interest to anyone to even participate in this activity? Yeah, yeah. And do people need or want anything genuinely, will genuinely make their lives better that can be done for that you know you end up with exercises that are really just about replacing some playground equipment or <laughs> getting some extra bins or whatever playgrounds and pba are really <laughs> closely associated they really are yeah <laughs> or you know do we should we have some more park benches or totally you know, no and, and while these things are nice you know it really does water down the participatory aspect when you're you're narrowing the possibilities so yeah. significantly that they're only of interest and or benefit to, to very few people. One of the things that we want to know at the moment, because there's an awful lot going on around participatory exercises, is on the one hand, do the individuals that participate in those exercises, do they feel empowered by it? Do they feel like their contributions making a difference? Does it give them more confidence in their governments or their local governments? Mm -hmm. So there's a very individual element to it. So we would talk to those people or survey those people and try and figure out whether that's the case. Mm -hmm. On the other side of things, there's the institutional side. So does the kind of digital world that has kind of grown up around us over the last 20 years, is that changing how institutions themselves work? You know, just because they're online, it doesn't mean they're doing things online or they're doing things well online, shall yeah. we say. So how are institutional structures changing in response to the fact that we're all on Twitter now, for instance, or mm. whatever. And, you know, is that a problem? How is that working? One of the most fascinating things about how kind of digital tools have, have kind of grown or evolved or changed or, or people have picked them up and used them for different things, um, I think is the example of M-Pacer in Africa. Mobile phones mushroomed in Africa. You know, usage is, uh, is very prevalent now. But when, you know, the old Nokias, where you remember the old Nokias that yeah, you, you know, go a week I'm without charging. I'm way older than that look, so yeah, I really so, do. So about quite 14 years ago now, 15 mm. years ago, a student from Nairobi University went home to, to a rural area to see his family. Yeah. And he noticed that his mother was 
paying for some you know produce uh, in film credit she was just transferring film credit to the vendor because one of the real issues in many many places in Africa is a lack of small change so you know people don't have small change what were they doing oh they were actually just transferring film credit amazing absolutely not what the system of mobile phone credit was was built for yeah. but he saw this and ran with it and now M-Pesa is one of the biggest uh, payment structures in, in Africa yeah. and it was simply because he observed how people were using something that was actually built for a very specific mm. purpose but they'd found this whole other immensely useful uh, use for it. The relevance is that tech evolve. you know, how people use tech is not necessarily what you build it for. We can build all sorts of platforms thinking, you know, in our little box room somewhere where we're brain, uh, you know, storming? brainstorming, that's it. Thought shower. Uh, yeah, thought shower. <laughs> okay, <laughs> when we're thought showering with each other, let's, we can... Uh, let's get drenched, right? <laughs> let's get absolutely drenched. Yeah, we can think, okay, let's build this and it'll do this and people will have X. That's yeah. not how the world works. People yeah, yeah. take things and make them their own. And you really want to lean into that to make things more effective, yeah. not try and corral people down different ways that mm. they don't want to go down. So yeah, this is part of the kind of research thing. It's okay, well, not just shall we build, is it good? It's like, well, how could it be better? How could it be different if we're actually doing it over here? Does it need to be different? How do people want to use it? What's well, so like real research, you mean? Real research, <laughs> yes. On the ground, getting dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. The use of tech was a theme that came up time and time again when talking to our guests. In our fourth episode, I spoke to Dr Nicole Curato about misery and asked the question, how can we reconstruct democracy at a time when nothing is promised? She and I chatted about natural disasters, the hierarchy of misery and her concept of the deserving victim. Just a note here, when Nicole talks about the disaster, she's referring to the 2013 typhoon Haiyan that devastated the Philippines and other parts of Southeast Asia, which, according to UN officials, affected about 11 million people, leaving many of them homeless. And when she mentions the book, she's referencing her book, Democracy in a Time of Misery, From Spectacular Tragedies to Deliberative Action. But for now, I'll let her introduce herself. So technically, I'm an associate professor at the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Wow. Okay, that's a great job title. Really good. And, and why do you say technically? Well, just because that's what appears on my payslip. <laughs> but I'd like to kind of just, I don't know, describe my profession as I'm a sociologist. I try to study how um, social realities unfold. I'm more comfortable with that title. So I was born and raised in the Philippines, but I've spent my adult life living elsewhere in the US, in the UK, and now Australia. Um, and the work that I do now has a lot to do uh, with politics and how communities perform democracies in their everyday lives. But when I kind of look back on my childhood, I was raised in a fairly apolitical household, although I grew up reading Time magazine and watching American cable news with my father. So there's definitely this background of understanding or being curious about politics, but living in a nonpartisan apolitical household. Um, but then when I studied um, sociology in uni, I think that's when I started um, getting more interested in being more systematic and challenging or taken for granted assumptions. And I think that kind of um, set the agenda for the rest of my professional career. My, I think, biggest political awakening was when I was an undergraduate student and I was in the Philippines then. Um, one of my classmates was abducted by the military when she was working with the peasant movement. And to me, that's really um, 
formative, formative of my political awareness. Um, she's an activist. Um, she really is committed to kind of a more left-wing agenda, which I think if you're kind of 18-year-old, just read Marx, is very admirable. It's one thing to read Marx, but to actually act on it is a different thing. So when that happened to her, really, it really kind of make, made me think, you can't just study. There has to be something else that you put on offer. But my skills have to be commensurate to the kind of tasks that I should be able to do. Like I, I'd be a bad activist. I'd be a bad community organizer. I just don't have the energy and the social skills for it. But what am I good at? I think I'm good at researching. I think I'm good at getting information. I think I'm good at writing and telling other people's stories in a systematic manner. So I think that's how I think um, I, I ended up doing the research that I do. When I started writing the book, it wasn't designed to really be about misery. My motivation actually for writing the book when I first entered on the field was to understand how participatory governance unfolds in the aftermath of disasters. It was a straightforward research question. Like I just ready to just conduct interviews and observe how political participation, especially among most vulnerable communities, um, what avenues are present for them to kind of give feedback, get accountability um, when they engage with the state. But then when I started looking at my transcripts and the longer I stay in the field, I think it's just so obvious that misery or suffering, uh, terms I use interchangeably in the book, it's just obvious that it's present. I mean, when I go to the field, I, I see makeshift graves in highways. I see signs outside uh, makeshift homes that commemorate the lives of people uh, who, who, who died in the disaster. So I think this is one of the advantages of being embedded in the field, because what is obvious can be problematized. We can start asking, why is this obvious? Why is this taken for granted? When my respondents often tell me we're miserable, miserable in, in their language, um, yeah. I just can't ignore that. I can't just take that as a background context and assume that, okay, they're sad. How do they take part in politics? And I tried to understand how exactly is this taken for granted reality of people feeling miserable? How is this affecting the way they engage in politics? So, of course, at the most basic individual level, psychologists would say that misery is like a negatively valenced emotion. Like it's an individual experience, especially when we don't communicate our misery to others. So misery can be an individual experience. Um, misery can be a collective experience. We can think about um, commemoration of the disaster in a mass grave or candlelighting vigils to pray for the soul of the dead. So it's very social. Um, performing misery is a social event as well. Actually, misery can also be political. Misery um, can be transformed to political claims and political demands. So when disaster survivor groups call for government accountability for deaths that could have been avoided had there been better weather forecasting, or when um, disaster survivors contest the official death toll of 6,000 and accuse the government of sanitizing the data, then I think that's a political claim. It's using their suffering, it's using mourning, it's using their grief to hold the government accountable. And I think that's what's making this kind of political moment very powerful because misery is transformed not just as, not just as an individual to a collective experience, but from a collective to a political experience. On to our last interview of the year. I chatted to Simon Parker, at the time the Corporate Director of Strategy at the London Borough of Redbridge, 
about a lot, but in this clip we talked about the Occupy movement and conservative anarchism. So, I mean, my career has been um, in and around government, started off as a journalist back in the Cretaceous. Um, I've done um, consulting. Uh, I ran a think tank. And most recently, I, I pitched up as a strategy director for a London council, um, trying to, to make all the stuff I thought about for 15 years real. Um, and I, I went back and read one of my reports from about 2005 recently and discovered that, that my shtick really is ancient. Basically, for the last 15 years, I've been arguing that the way we do public services and democracy is all wrong and needs to change radically for the 21st century, which is a really simple thing to say and not a very original thing to say, but an incredibly difficult thing to actually do, uh, as I've learnt over the last four years in local government. I'm fascinated by social movements, which I know alienates a few people because they're like, you know, what, what do we learn from Occupy? Um, and I guess yeah, what, what I've always said to those people is, well, you know, if you want to get the lessons from somewhere else, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm about to go out and erect a tent outside your house or anything. But, you know, it's, it's my way into it. And um, I like, Occupy, I, I've had a really sort of my, my relationship with Occupy has shifted hugely over the years. And I think it sort of reflects kind of that transition from the, from the Blair years into the Cameron years and austerity. Um, mm. I remember when it kind of kicked off, I was like, you know, it, it's a bunch of crusties. Um, they don't know what they want. What, what on earth is this thing? And about three or four years later, I read David Graeber um, and the Democracy Project. And mm. over the years, I've slowly started to understand what was important about Occupy. And it wasn't the kind of the, it wasn't the, the, the crusties or the camps or the, the, the slightly crap failure to articulate any demands. It was the way that people self-organised. It was the, the attempt to kind of prefigure a society which was much more democratic, which is how Graeber frames it, actually. I went back and read his mm. book again recently. Yeah, and so I suppose, yeah, the, the, the message from Occupy wasn't about tax or about money out of politics. It was about the fact that we could have a much more self-organising society. And I think you see that really followed through in something like Extinction Rebellion, which is kind of self-organised on a massive scale out of nowhere. Um, now, neither of, those moment, neither of those movements are perfect, Um I've got a friend who always reminds me that there were some very serious allegations about, about rapes and sexual assaults in some of the Occupy camps. And it's really important not to brush that under the carpet. Yeah, leaderless, decentralised things are, are quite vulnerable um, yeah. to, to poor individual behaviour. But then, of course, the state isn't a leaderless, decentralised thing. You know, it's, it's a hierarchy and inevitably so. Um, but we can change it to be a healthier hierarchy. And so I guess what what it feels to me is is happening in society is the more and more people are able, capable to, to self-organise, um, to get things done. You're seeing that butt up against a state which is still built in a very old-school hierarchical way. And I guess my, my plea is that we should reshape government so it supports rather than works against self-organisation. Um, and I guess you come to Taiwan because I think what um, Audrey Tung, the digital minister, has done there is a really interesting way into the discussion. Um, and the conservative anarchism in the title is, is, is their term. And I, I, it is okay. I'd, I'd credited that to you, so oh, you've just gone down in my estimation a little shit. bit, dude. Oh, yeah. Um, oh no, let's end it here. Yeah. You know, the premise for this podcast is a lie. But, yeah. Anyway, sorry, dude. Sorry. Well, I think you know. You know, I, I guess I've, I've never actually seen Audrey define what she what she thinks that means. Um, but I, I think what it might mean is that we should go about dismantling the structures that uh, oppress people while trying to respect their, their views and wishes and beliefs. I keep thinking, so the, the example that kept coming back to me was the, the Churchill statue. 
Um, and the whole debate about you know people pulling that down, which is a complete non-debate because no one wanted to. But I thought it was a really interesting example of where it's like, okay, you know, why, why would we tear down Churchill? We tear him down because he was a racist, um, and he was. I don't think anyone seriously disputes that. You know, we, we tear him down because no. he's a symbol of all sorts of, of things that we might not disapprove of today. But actually, if we did that, this is the conservative bit, then, you know, what, what are we tearing down? We're tearing down a really important symbol that means a lot to other people. We're tearing down a symbol of the guy who faced down Hitler. And so I guess, you know, in, in a way, I suppose, what's a conservative anarchist take? It's don't pull down the statue, but it is demand that we see someone like Churchill in their full complexity. And that, we, you know, we can accept that, you know, we can accept all of his flaws and that he was erased and condemned those while also recognising that, you know, he, he was a pivotal part in stopping something much worse happening. Well, I think, my, my, well, so at the conceptual level, the argument is that we need to create a state, which is probably a bit more like a social movement, um, that we need yeah. to be able to work alongside what's happening in society and to su- support that. I think you can talk about that at the level of, of principles and the kind of principles that you might apply to that sort of public service. So, you know, to, to give you an example of one that I've been working up, I think processes will probably come to matter a bit more than, than outcomes. And what I mean by that, I guess, is that... Um, if you've got a state that does self-organisation, then it's a kind of government which is very facilitative. It's about bringing people together and helping them to work out what the outcome should be, what contribution they can make. Um, so I think sort of democratic processes, digital processes become very important in all of that. Thank you for listening to this, the first series of the Practical Democracy podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. And more to the point, thank you to all of our brilliant guests. Dr. Rebecca Rumble. Dr. Rosalind Fuller. Carl Whistlecraft. Kate Grigg. Joe Mitchell. Kevin Davies. Dr. Nicole Curato. Carolyn Hassan. Bex Ray Evans. Ed Hammond. And Simon Parker. I've been Ben Fags. We'll be back uh, with more great guests next year. If you have any questions or know someone that would make a good interviewee, then do get in touch. Info at delib.net. Until then, look after yourselves. Goodbye. Be lucky.